Hello, and welcome to another episode of Interactions, a podcast about law and religion and how they interact in the world around us. I'm Anna Knudsen. And I'm Ethan Anthony. And for this two-part episode, we had the pleasure of speaking to Peter Wozniak and Daniel Lachance about two death row cases relevant to law and religion. In this first episode of two, we want to talk about prisoners on death row and the R-I-G-H-T, right to death. The right, if there is one, for death row inmates to have a say in deciding the way in which they die. For this, we're going to be looking at the case of Michael Nance, a death row inmate who requested death by firing squad in the state of Georgia. By current law, death row inmates are allowed to contest the means of execution, which currently is by lethal injection. But to do so, they have to come up with the alternative means of execution themselves. We'll be getting into relevant cases like Lossip v. Gross, how retributive justice unfolds in American prisons, and discussing the ethics of what happens when the burden falls on the prisoner to decide the way they die. In our second episode, we're going to talk about the RITE right to death, the religious rites and rituals that accompany death made particularly salient in death row cases. For this, we'll be looking at the case of Ramirez v. Collier. In this case, John Ramirez, a Texas death row inmate, requested that he be permitted to have his pasture present at his execution and to pray over him and lay hands on him. But Texas denied the request and the case went to the Supreme Court. The question became whether Texas' denial represented a violation of the Free Exercise Clause of the First Amendment and a violation of our lupa. In this interview, we asked the question, what rights do religious inmates have on death row? You're listening to Interactions and this is The Right to Death. Daniel Lachance is a legal scholar working at the intersection of American legal and cultural history, criminology, and literary studies. He came to Emory as an Andrew W. Mellon faculty fellow in law and the humanities. His first book, Executing Freedom, The Cultural Life of Capital Punishment in the United States, won a Choice Outstanding Academic Title Award from the American Library Association. His second book, Crime Exploitation, was released in May 2022. Co-authored with Paul Kaplan, the book explores reality television depictions of crime and punishment, from cops to dog the bounty hunter and their place in American culture. This is our interview with Daniel Lachance. So to start off, um, can you talk to me a bit about Michael Nance's case? Um, what is the nature of the quest that he's making? Right. So um, Mr. Nance is a uh, capital defendant uh, who has been uh, sentenced to death and is uh, on death row in Georgia. Okay. And uh, he has requested, given um, the kind of recent challenges with um, lethal lethal injection executions. Mm-hmm. Um, he has claimed and wants to be executed um, by a different method of execution, um, and so the Supreme Court has ruled in some prior precedents over the last okay. ten or fifteen years. There have been a bunch of challenges to the constitutionality of lethal injection, mm-hmm. um, and the Supreme Court has upheld the legality of lethal injection as a method of execution. It has said that it is not cruel and unusual, but it has acknowledged uh, to some extent the problems that have accompanied lethal injections and has uh, essentially created a doctrine that says you're not entitled to a painless execution. Was this Alito who 
said you're not entitled to a painless execution. I believe so. Yeah, I believe okay. it was Alito. Um, you know, or or the majority in that decision okay. that you know okay. he might have been writing for in Glossop. Yeah. But the um, essentially, you're not. You're, you know, the court's doctrine is 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 you're not entitled to a painless execution. Right. But if you can point to another readily available method that the state can use to put you to death that mm-hmm. is substantially uh, less likely uh, to cause unnecessary pain, right. um, then you might have a case. So right? why is it the prisoner's job to decide, like, the, rec- decide the alternative means of execution? Why is that mm-hmm. his burden right. and not the state's? Well, I think partly because um, the you know the court. I mean, there's there's kind of these sociological reasons, right? Which okay. is the court has become more conservative over time. Mm-hmm. So the kinds of justices that are sitting on the court that would be say open to, um, you know, uh, that would see these kinds of things as perverse, right. uh, and would and would be open to sort of thinking about um, uh, painful executions as inherently unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. They're just not there, right? So the so the, politically, the court is has shifted rightward over time, and so right. there's just not a majority that is willing to um, give a lot of wiggle room to folks coming forward mm-hmm. and challenging the constitutionality of death sentences. And so, yes, I think to to, to folks that are against the death penalty uh, who see it as uh, an evil, um, there's an extra layer here of of a perversion of saying to a defendant you need to pick which way to die if you don't want to be put to death by this particular method of execution and you need to you know the burden is on you to then you know concoct a uh, an alternative and to prove that it's less likely to go wrong or it's less likely to inflict undue or unnecessary uh, pain and it is that it is superior to uh, lethal injection Hmm. and it is quite perverse like as you say um He's not requesting not to be executed. Mm-hmm. Like that's not what's like under like discussion here. He's right. just requesting a different way of dying, mm-hmm. like a more, maybe a more painless death, maybe a more dignified death. Mm-hmm. Um, is that kind of like the pattern that we're seeing in recent court cases dealing with? Yeah, injection? I mean, I I would say you know it's perverse depending on your perspective. Okay. Right? So. For folks that are, and I think for some of the justices who believe in the morality of the death penalty as well as its constitutionality, mm. you know, what they would say is these offenders didn't give their victims options on how to die, right? They right. inflicted very painful, gratuitously, you know, I mean, all murder is gratuitous, right? But like, <laughs> but, you know, they, they, you know, in many cases it, it inflicted extreme pain. Yeah. Um, and so the, the very fact that the state regulates pain is giving them something that um, they didn't give to their own victims, right? So it really is, I mean, it really, it does depend on your perspective about the morality of the death penalty, right? Right. And if you think of this as a retributive uh, kind of punishment, there's a way in which you could make the argument that, um, you know, from one point of view, it's perverse to say, choose which way to die, Mm. right? It's torturous. It's a form of, of psychological torture. But from another perspective, one that sort of is really thinking a lot about the harm that's being um, recompensed by right. via the execution, this is this is a uh, a way of making the violence of execution qualitatively different mm-hmm. from the lawless violence that that execution is punishing. Right. right? So right. that ha- you know, being able to say we want to minimize pain, we are going to shift the burden to you on how to do that. We mm-hmm. think this execution method 
is you know uh, is is does not violate the Constitution mm-hmm. you know in terms of in, inflicting gratuitous pain. But if you can point to something yeah. that is you know is is better, then the, the burden is on you to do that. Now so, Michael Nance has requested firing squad, mm-hmm. and if we're talking about punitive eye for eye right. justice. Why are people uncomfortable with that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Yeah. Yep. So the history of methods of execution in the United States is is you know the the, the big pattern that historians mm-hmm. see in it. It's a history of what I call dark optimism, right? Dark in the sense is that we're talking about how to kill people. Hmm. Optimistic in the sense of having this kind of persistent faith that the development of technology and the development of human sensibilities is leading us to find methods of execution that are going to be quicker Mm -hmm. and more painless um, than our older methods of execution. Mm -hmm. So hanging was the the modal form of capital punishment until New York State uh, did the first execution by electricity in 1890 on a Mm -hmm. man named William Kemmler. Um, and at that moment, right, there was this there was this real outcry over the history of um, how barbarous hangings were. Hmm. Uh, sometimes, um, if the rope was too long, the victim would be decapitated. Hmm. Uh, at other times, if the rope wasn't long enough, the neck wouldn't break, and they would strangle to death. It was hmm. hard to look at. Right, yeah. you'd see a, a body that was, you know, swinging and struggling, and it took a long time. Right, mm-hmm. you look at newspaper accounts, anywhere from twelve to sometimes twenty six, twenty eight minutes of a person dangling there, before, you know, to ensure that they were dead. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, electricity had this promise of instantaneous death with no yeah. sensation of feeling. Right, that that all of these folks who were, you know, electricity was relatively new, or humans' mm-hmm. ability to control it was relatively new, right. and there was this kind of real, uh, real sort of almost utopian sense that we could get rid of the the sort of pain and the lingering death mm-hmm. of hanging with this very quick, surefire, easy death by electrocution, and of course, that's not what happened, right? Mm-hmm. Kemmler's Execution went terribly awry, right? Yeah. He, you know, by all accounts, you know, it was, it, you know, the, the body was smoking. Um, he mm. wasn't dead after the first round of electricity went through him. The witnesses fled the chamber because it was so disgusting wow. to watch, right? It was all, if you look at the headlines covering Kemmler's execution, they were, you know, it, you know, they, they said things like worse than being burned alive. Right. So there's this. And so so we see, you know, the development of yet more new versions of it to to replace uh, electricity Mm -hmm. Um, that takes, you know, many, many decades. You know, a lot of states hold on to electricity, but other states opt to develop what they think will be a, a, a more superior method than hanging or electrocution. And so in the 1920s, you have the first execution in Nevada via gas chamber. Right. But of course, we know that those executions have had a history of being botched. Right. And and uh, and so, again, it's this history of Americans looking at executions that make them really uncomfortable. Right. And then instead of saying we there's no way to kill a person in, in, you know, in that, that is quick and painless. Right. Instead, saying no, we can. We just haven't found this holy grail that we're that we're going to continue to look for. Right. So, lethal injection, when it first emerged mm. and was first used by the state of Texas in the early 1980s, 
was that. It was this yeah. new notion that this would be like putting an animal down, right, mm. at the pound, where you just put them to sleep. Yeah. And um, and what we found is, or what you know, folks have the claims folks have made is, it's not that simple, right? Mm. Sometimes prisoners have histories of IV drug use yeah. that make it huh. very difficult to get a vein, right? right? So twice in the state of Ohio, men have been strapped to the gurney and 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 they've been poked and prodded mm. for two to three hours in an effort to find a vein, and then the execution chain team was forced to give up, and the mm. execution was called off. Mm. Because you have to have two lines to ensure yeah. there's a fail-safe backup mechanism, right. and sometimes they couldn't even find one, one line, mm. right? You have Oklahoma, where Clayton Lockett was executed in what was a horrifying 45-minute yeah. event where they couldn't find a vein, and so they went in through his uh, groin, um, and they didn't quite establish the line, and the, the drugs appeared to have gone into the tissue rather than into the bloodstream, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the device slipped out, but nobody saw it because he had been covered up because they wanted mm. to try to provide what they said was dignity to him mm. to not have his, you know, uh, genitals exposed to right. the witnesses. So, again, there's this time after time after time, there is this pattern of, you know, having this confidence in the face of failure that we can get this right. Yeah. So some historians have really argued that even though the rhetoric is about being more humane mm-hmm. and, and, and it's, about benef- it's about creating a, making it as easy as possible on the person undergoing the execution mm-hmm. and, and, and honoring their dignity, um, that really what this has all been about is not ensuring that the person who's being executed is getting as painless an execution as possible, mm. but instead making it easier for those who carry out the witness uh, and those who watch uh, the execution. Yes, that this is about cosmetics. Mm. That the history of execution reform is less about, you know, caring for the pain that the condemned may or may not experience and trying mm. to minimize it. It's really been about cosmetic purposes. So back to your question about like. You know, why is the court, you know... Um, Iffy on the firing squad. Right. right. That's what Michael Nance yes. is requesting. And it's yeah. quite shocking to hear someone wants to die by firing squad. Yes. And it, but, it, but it's the same thing. He's being put to death. Right. So feel y- different. Exactly. So the firing squad has a, a, you know, a comparatively much better record than any other mode of execution. Um, it's very hard to find in the historical record botched. Mm. Uh, um, firing squad mm. uh, executions, um, but because it is because it is bloody, because it is you know riddling someone with multiple bullets, and there's a lot of blood, yeah. and then somebody has to clean up that blood, and witnesses have to see that blood. There's no getting around that blood. Right. Um, there's a way in which we have we have backed away from the firing squad. Not mm. because it doesn't meet the requirements of being quick. It's hard to look at. It's hard to look at, right? So that mm. history of, if you see the history of execution reform as, a, as, as driven by cosmetic concerns mm-hmm. rather than um, concerns for morality and, and the desire to inflict the least amount of t- pain mm. possible, um, you know, you, 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 you can tell a story that this yeah. is really not about giving the condemned person um, uh, the, the the most painless execution possible. It's about managing the emotions yeah. and the emotional response of those that have to mm. carry out the death sentence and those who witness it. 
And so these cycles you're talking about, there seems to be this resurgence of people requesting firing squad mm -hmm. deaths. There was Utah 2010, mm -hmm. I believe. There was South Carolina recently, and now there's Michael Nance. Are we seeing this resurgence of just violent deaths in response to this aesthetic concern? Like, mm -hmm. what does it mean for a prisoner to request this, mm -hmm. um, this death by firing squad, this very bloody death? Mm -hmm. um, what are courts going to do with that request? Yeah, I mean, my hunch is that the states don't really want to put people to death this way. Yeah. And, um, you know, some of these state legislatures, I, you know, like South Carolina, have created this as a backup option. They might have had the electric chair as well. I saw that. Okay, they, was that? They have multiple fail-safes. Like yes. They still yeah. allow electric chair. Yeah. I have to check that. But. Yeah. Yeah, fact check me on this. But some yeah. states have, you know, have put back into play the electric chair, yeah. but also firing squad. It's crazy. So it's hard for me to imagine courts, you know, striking down the firing squad as being cruel and unusual punishment. Mm. Um, because there's no evidence? Because they're not botched in the same way? Those would be very good, you know, sort of rationales, mm -hmm. what you just said. Um, and also because I don't think legally we, you know, there, there's this sort of question of like what when law is being decided, yeah. right, there's the subtext and then there's the text. Okay. And I don't think textually you're ever going to see the Supreme Court say, these executions just look bloody, and that's un mm. and that's gross, right? Yeah. And that's that violates the Eighth Amendment violation on cruel mm. and unusual um, punishment, um, because cruelty. I think they 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 know they're supposed to read cruelty as the cruelty of uh, you know of of what the person who's receiving the punishment experiences, yeah. Yeah. rather than some kind of like perceived cruelty, right? right? right. That the people watching it, you know, uh, I don't think you would see you know, courts go there. Although, who knows, right? Yeah. I, you know, Antonin Scalia, who was this famous originalist, mm -hmm. you know, who was a staunch supporter of the death penalty mm -hmm. and defender of its constitutionality, um, even he admitted that, you know, some of the things that we tolerated in the 18th century, like ear cropping, right, um, mm -hmm. where, you know, somebody who was would be punished by having a section of their ear cut off um, or branding, yeah. um, that, that that probably wouldn't pass, yeah. you know, Eighth Amendment muster. Um, and the question is, again, comes down to, it's hard to know, you know, what the court, you know, we know there are a lot of variables that impinge on justice's decision-making, hmm. uh, but, but no, those variables aren't always legible in the decisions that they write, mm. right? So I, you know, you could, I could imagine a lot of these justices or folks deciding the constitutionality of the death penalty who, who, you know, don't like bloody executions. And maybe they don't like it at a certain point to the point where they're like, this would be a, an embarrassment to have mm. this kind of mm -hmm. an execution on a regular basis in the United States. And so they'll find some other rationale um, right. to, you know, that, that goes beyond the cosmetic. This is the subtext you're talking about? The subtext would be, ooh, this is, I don't like the <laughs> image of people being burned alive yeah. or being, you know, sh shot to death and bleeding all over the place. But the text isn't going to be about cosmetics. Right. You know, there is language about, you know, the evolving standards of decency in a society, you know, in society that you can right. point to in the Eighth Amendment. And maybe they could talk about cosmetics, but I don't know that they would because it looks... It looks mm -hmm. it looks sort of callous to say right. this. We really need to care about the optics and not the actual right. pain 
that someone is experiencing during an exhibition. Would it be possible that, like, in their effort to advance, like, an optical, like, an aesthetic death, they would somehow cut back on the prisoner's autonomy to decide their own way of dying? Like, in the name of aesthetics or, like, subtextually in the name of aesthetics, mm -hmm. we might see the prisoner's right to decide their execution be lessened? Because right now what's mm -hmm. striking to me is just the fact that you as the prisoner, it's your job to find an alternative mm -hmm. means of death. Right. The state isn't going to come in and look mm -hmm. for that proactively. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think there's a lot going on here. I don't, to answer your question, do I think that um, they're going to roll back, you know, if defendants come up and say, you know, we want this really gruesome method, I want to be beheaded, right? Mm -hmm. That would be, a, you know, a good example, right? I right. think being beheaded is is a lot more humane than, than what you're doing to me. Or... They want to sort of force, you know, uh, the prison officials and the wider world to confront what an execution is, which is a body mutilating form of violence. Right. Right. There's no, you know, it, it, the violence, it, it's always, the body is always mutilated. It's mm -hmm. just how legible that mutilation is to onlookers. Right. right? And so if, if you, you know, you could imagine some inmates having a political desire to be put to death in a, in a way that is legible, legible where that, that become a free violence speech becomes, concern? uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's a crazy <laughs> lead, but kind of my question is like, if you right. wanted your death to be a statement as a death row inmate, do they have some sort of constitutional protection to say, yeah. I would like the public to know that I'm being executed. I know that right. people often will read last words of death right. row inmates. I've seen compilations mm -hmm. online where you can just go and see what they are. It's Absolutely. rather macabre, but Mm -hmm. To make a statement, is there some sort of free speech protection that these well, you have you know well? you can't control the state's you know operation in carrying out a death sentence mm -hmm. um, and and say that you have a right to die, you know that that, that you, the way that you are being put to death is a form of expression because it's not your expression; it's yeah. the state, you know, administering a punishment. So right. you're there's no I don't I don't I think it would be a very big stretch to sort of you know, imagine that someone could say, I have a First Amendment right to die in a way such that my death communicates what I want to communicate mm. about it. Because if that's it's kind of the limits. <laughs> <laughs> if it's an expressive act, it's the state that's making mm -hmm. the expression, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I actually think with these cases is that I don't think this, I think these, I mean, Georgia is fighting Mr. Nance's efforts mm. to try to dictate the terms of his execution, Are right? Are they fighting it because they want to not seem as bloody? I think there's probably a lot of different reasons. I think one of the reasons why they're fighting it is they don't want inmates having power over the operations mm. of their prisons and their criminal justice system. Mm. Um, that, you know, they don't want to go into court and litigate you know, every different defendant's idea about how you can put me to death the most humanely. Mm. And so that's why they are, you know, really doing procedural, you know, maneuvers to try to, um, to try to stop inmates from taking advantage of the recent rights they have gained, um, you know, under cases that were decided mm. about lethal injection to offer alternatives. They want to make it as impossible for inmates mm. to prevail on this. I don't think it has anything to do with them wanting to control the cosmetics of the execution. Mm -hmm. I think it has everything to do with them wanting to say, we get to run our show the way we want to run mm. our show. 
and you don't get to dictate to us anything about what happens to you, right? right. That's not how this works. This is punishment. Right. And so there's an emotional dimension there, but I think yeah. there's also a logistical one, which is mm. they don't want, you know, on a bureaucratic level, it costs time and money to, to um, give everybody, you know, these alternative modes of execution yeah. and to litigate, you know, all these. And I think some of them cynically see these, these, these condemned men as, as, and women as, as trying to buy more time by right. just, by just right. you know, prolonging these appeals and using anything they can to have to live longer. Right. Um, but I also think that there is a, a real sense of we don't want to have to put all of the time, energy, and resources into creating and executing all of these alternatives. Right. We hmm. want to put people to death the way we know how to put people to death, which is by lethal injection, and we don't want anyone telling us else, you know, how to run right. our death chambers. Right. Now you bring up that people have questioned the sincerity based on how long someone wants to live. Mm -hmm. I remember you saying that the time spent on death row is an average of 17 years yeah. now. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. I mean, the, the death penalty when it was revived in the 1970s mm -hmm. uh, was imagined by its supporters as this antidote to a justice system that they saw as ridden with technicalities mm -hmm. that often let inmates, um, people who committed crime, from ever seeing justice. But even when they were sentenced to prison, you know, there was a sense that prison was too soft, it was too rehabilitation oriented, hmm. and that it was a revolving door. And people would, you know, go in, who had done something terrible, and then they would be out again in three or four years, and they would do something terrible to someone else. And there was this real sense that a kind of liberal approach to punishment was creating a revolving door prison system and a justice system in which defendants had all the rights and the victims of crimes had, had crime had none. And in that moment, the death penalty came to be seen as a symbol of the opposite of a liberal, huh. permissive, soft approach to criminal justice, right? right? It brought about finality, mm -hmm. right? Um, it brought about a sense of security. This person will never kill again mm -hmm. or will never harm someone again. Um, and it seemed like an act of moral clarity. It was a way of mm -hmm. saying, punishment shouldn't be about helping you get your act together. Punishment should be about inflicting pain to you know, give you your just desserts for having harmed mm -hmm. other people. So the state that was punishing with rehabilitative prison um, and short sentences mm -hmm. was seen as not really punishing. Right. And the death penalty really was this unequivocal act of holding people responsible mm. and punishing them and giving them what their actions were worth in terms mm. of, you know, an eye for an eye, right? A lex talionis approach yeah. to justice. Um, so, you know, this is, this is all to say that, um, you know, when we think about, um, when we think about time spent on death row, mm -hmm. um, in the 1970s, or, you know, in the 1950s, you know, from the, from the, before the 1970s, right, when the Supreme Court had this you know, a uh, hot moment when it temporarily suspended executions and mm -hmm. they, there were no executions for about 10 years while issues with the constitutionality of the death penalty were being resolved. Um, in the decades, you know, leading up to the 70s, the average time between sentencing and execution was less than two years. Wow. The closer you get to the 19th century, we're talking months rather mm. than years. So in the 70s, it, it seemed like the death penalty would be this thing that was a fast, swift, painful, 
punitive response to crime that would give justice to the victims of crime and their mm. families and would keep people safe, mm. right? Because that person could never harm anyone again. Right. But what ended up happening is because federal courts, after all of these constitutional um, remedies were implemented in the 1970s, federal courts began to more heavily supervise how everything about how states carried out um, mm. their death penalty systems within their criminal justice systems. Mm. And so as a result of, you know, there's many different reasons why appeals take so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and I won't get into them because 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 really the point I want to make is because of much greater federal supervision of, of executions, mm. um, we, we've seen over time um, the average time between execution move from what it was before the 70s to... 17 years on average. Wow. But also the vast majority of people who are sentenced to death aren't executed. So we've had over 10, maybe I think 10, 15,000 people sentenced to death in the United States since 1976. Mm. And we've had about 15 to 1600 executions. Wow. So the vast majority of people who are sentenced to death either haven't made it yet to the to the to the execution chamber or their cases were overturned on appeal mm. or they're still waiting. Right. Right. Um, and so inmates have tried and failed to argue that because they're living under this sentence of death for so long, that that amounts to a form of psychological torture. Mm. Right. That having to live every day of your life knowing that the state is going to execute you um, mm. and carrying that sort of mental stress yeah. um, is an unconstitutional, you know, violation of the Eighth Amendment's um, uh, prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment, mm. because you could you could, you could say it's both, right? It's yeah. unusual in the sense that historically executions didn't take this long to happen, right? And then cruel in the sense that it's a form of psychological torture. Mm. But historically, Americans have been much less likely to acknowledge psychological pain as mm. a form of punishment. Or an experience as part of the experience of punishment. Do you think we're going to see a shift in that with like conversations around psychological pain, mental health? Do you see that these? Yeah. Pos- are the are we going to see a possible shift? Maybe for not with or this for court. Not I mean, if we court. if you're thinking about like at the higher levels, no, mm. right? Not with the Supreme Court. Um, with you know uh, you know potentially at the lower court level, mm. but it doesn't really if it but you know if it has legs and it's making radical changes you know, it's going, it's not going to get very far. So for instance, a federal district judge in California Mm -hmm. ruled the California death penalty unconstitutional Mm. um, because on average in California, the average time between sentencing and execution had risen to 25 years. Oh, wow. And when he wrote this decision, nobody had been, I think it was like in 2000. Gosh, I don't want to say because I'll I'll get the dates wrong, but it was it was within the last five to six years okay. when he wrote this decision. Um, nobody had been executed in California for since like two thousand five. Wow. So and California has the largest death row in the country with over seven hundred people mm. on it. So you have all these people in solitary confinement, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of mm. them. Nobody's been executed in over a decade, um, and. These people are all living with the sentence of death when this yeah. court reaches, when this case reaches the court. And you have this, you know, you have this federal district court judge who 
probably values the things that you were just mentioning about, yes, like psychological pain is pain. And this pain is not incidental to the punishment. It is clearly something the state has the ability to control inflicting, and yet mm. it does. And therefore, you know, and all these other, you know, you can read the decision. But the court says, look, the California doesn't have a death penalty. It has, you know, essentially in California, you are sentenced to life without parole with, with the remote possibility of death. That's what that's yeah. what it's actually happening here. If we mm-hmm. if we like name what's happening honestly, yeah. And so he struck it down. He said this yeah. is unconstitutional because it's too it's, it takes too long. Now in the case of California, it struck down the death penalty. Could you see this going the other way, where someone says it's taking too long, and then the court says, "Great, let's execute you faster. Let's expedite <laughs> it." Because right. I see it like, oh, I hope that this argument is strong enough so that maybe mm-hmm. anti death penalty legislation like takes hold. But I could also see someone saying, "Great, let's make." a faster turnaround. Right. Yeah. So I think the thing is, you know, that judge's that that, that judge's decision didn't stand. Right. Oh, it didn't stand. No. Right. He was that that's what I'm that's mm. the, the point that I'm making oh, no. is that these okay. these federal judges, right, there's three levels. There's the district court judge, okay. and that's that's who overturned the California death penalty mm. and said it was unconstitutional. Mm. The Ninth Circuit, which is a relatively liberal circuit, was like, no. Right. Like this will never pass muster, you know, mm. given what the Supreme Court has said in, in the history of litigating, you know, psychological, you know, claims about the psychological harms of, of, of incarceration. This decision doesn't will not stand. And if it goes up to the Supreme Court, they'll overturn it. So we're going to overturn it mm. because we just know that this is a this is too radical of a mm. decision that no, that doesn't have any kind of. Uh, that won't survive, you know, moving up mm. through, you know, through through the through the federal appellate system. So yeah. so California goes back to having the death penalty, yeah. right? Yeah. But then we know, right? We've got a governor in there who, you know, Gavin Newsom, who has essentially suspended execution. So we, there's other things that have happened in California, but still the death penalty is on the books, and you still have people right. on death row, you know, blah 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 blah. Yeah. So, but your point about what are the effects of what would the what would the likely effects be if the court somehow did, which it never will, say mm. that this psychological pain, I should say, never will under its current you know configuration yeah. at the top levels. Um, what would what would happen if they said, yeah, psychological pain is a real thing? Well, yeah, you could imagine states saying, let's expedite these these executions, but it's yeah. really hard to do that in part because. Um, of the layers of due process that people are entitled to. Mm-hmm. So in the 90s, people were complaining about how long it was taking to put people to death, right? It was mm-hmm. it had crept up to about 10 years on average. And they, in, in, in the mid-90s, Congress passed um, legislation called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, which changed the game for capital punishment appeals. It made it mm-hmm. much harder for you to get on the habeas level of review, right, which is after you've gone through, you know, there was something wrong with my trial, um, and you're making kind of other kinds of claims about why you shouldn't be put to death at the state and then federal level, there was this perception that inmates were gummying up the system with frivolous appeals. Mm. And so their rights to bring new claims, you know, that they hadn't, you know, that, that were outside of the claims from their you know, state and federal appeals were dramatically shrunk by the mm. courts. And everyone said, look, we've put all this legislation into um, play that's going to make it harder and harder for, for inmates to even bring claims mm. in front of the court um, and have their claims heard. 
that's going to really speed up these executions. Mm. And it didn't. Part of the issue is money, right? States don't want to pay for good defense attorneys for the poor people that are charged mm. with capital crimes. And so egregiously incompetent um, defenses happen in a lot of states that use the death penalty the mm. most, right? Lawyers who are sleep through parts of the trial. Mm. Lawyers who never bring a witness in defense. Mm. You know, lawyers who don't cross-examine, right? And and so the the rates that the states offer attorneys to try these cases are so pitiful that so that few people are, are taking them. That's mm. especially the case in California. No one wants to do this work because the state... Can't you know? Isn't willing yeah. to allocate money mm. to uh, to really to do it, and so as a result of this, the re- the, the the flaws in these trials are so egregious, mm. right? That that they that they that that even conservative pro death penalty appellate judges are saying no, this can't stand, right? right. And sending these cases back to be retried, mm. which starts the process again. Because it varies so widely from state to state, like based on like the district attorney, mm-hmm. like there's just this level of chance involved. Yep, that's another part of the puzzle, right? That like mm-hmm. some some counties in Texas have not had a death penalty trial since the 70s, right? Mm-hmm. And then Houston, the county that Houston's in, Harris County, if it were a state, it's had so many death penalty trials oh, wow. that the number of people who've been executed who committed crimes in that one county is equivalent to is the highest. Equivalent to the the um, to, you know is is larger than the total amount of executions from any single state except Texas. So more wow. people have been executed from this one county wow. in Texas than the entire state of Oklahoma, th- yeah. than the entire state of Virginia, than the entire entire state of Georgia since the 1970s. Mm. Right. So D- the DA has a lot of power and discretion over when to seek the death penalty, mm-hmm. um, and so. You're right. There's a there's an unevenness across all of these different places, mm-hmm. but but generally the the kind of common denominator, which has nothing to do with who's who's who the DA is, is how good is the representation that death row inmates or potential death row inmates, right? People charged with capital crimes for the prosecutors seeking the death penalty. Mm-hmm. How good are the free lawyers that the state is providing for them? Mm-hmm. And if you want good lawyers, you got to pay for them. Yeah. And a lot of these states, it's nobody wants to, their tax dollars to go to defending murderers, hmm. right? Yeah. So you just end up having, you know, there's a lot of great defense attorneys, right? My right. dad was a criminal defense attorney, yeah. so I'm not knocking criminal defense attorneys, and you know, but I'm, what I'm saying is these are the cases that people that you know have a lot of experience and a lot of brain power and a lot of you know um, a, a lot of knowledge. Are the least likely to take they because they're take because them. they're they don't want to take them. They don't. There's mm-hmm. no incentive financially to take them. And so the clock just keeps running. Exactly. People just stay longer and longer mm-hmm. on death row. But then at the appeal stage, right after these people mm-hmm. have been sentenced to death and they've gone through appeals, that's often when you see pro bono big New York firms coming mm-hmm. in and doing as part of their pro bono work, the mm-hmm. giving you know throwing all of these like heavy hitter guns at the situation, mm-hmm. right, and finding you know a whole new set of really legitimate things that that again make it really so so there's really not an easy way to get back to your original question to speed up executions right simply because of the economics in these states and the way budgets work but also 
just as a just as a matter of you know we've settled on the fact that we give people due process yeah um, and that we're going to review it at different levels which we didn't do before the 70s very often right and so um, there's only so much there's only so much there's going to be limits to how much you can speed up executions and so these prisoners are just going to have that psychological torture every day on death row for who knows how long mm -hmm. Yep. Mm. But you know what the what the prosecutors say when prisoners bring these cases and say mm. this is psychological torture, the prosecutors say, well, then drop your appeals. Right. And mm. a good chunk of, of executions in the United States are people who did precisely that. They're, mm. we, they're called volunteers. But these are wow. people that decided they don't want to live in an, you know, in an eight by ten box waiting to yeah. die. They just want to get it over with. Wow. And they drop all of their appeals. Um, mm. So, you know, there's a. There, there's a, a, a kind of, again, thinking about the perspective of people who support the death penalty. Mm -hmm. For them, it's a like, you don't get to have your cake and eat it too. You can't have all the benefits of getting, you know, really close inspection of your case and making sure all the T's were crossed and I's were dotted and then say that that's torturing you, right? Mm -hmm. That you are perverting and saying that you're, that like too much justice is a form of psychological torture. Mm -hmm. And they, they're saying that's an incoherent argument. Right. Um, and beyond that, they're saying, we all know what you're doing here. You're stalling. Mm. You're stalling for more time and then claiming that, you know, and so we've given you more time to, you know, to answer every single one of your questions. Right. And then you're then you're telling us that it's too late, that you've been on death row for too long and um, and you've been under too much psychological pain. Right. Mm. So I think some some folks right on the left are very much able to still look at this and say, this is ridiculous, right? This yeah. is a form of psychological torture. And like everyone deserves justice, but they shouldn't have to wait on, on death row for 17 years to be mm -hmm. executed and to, to have to live every day with that hanging over their head. Right. But folks that support the death penalty say, look, you know, if you want justice and due process, you can't then say that that's torturing you. Hmm. Now, what about people who are anti-death penalty. I remember when you were writing your amicus briefing with other people mm -hmm. that there were signatories who didn't want to sign because in some sense that if you're signing on to have a more <laughs> just death, are you kind of also supporting the death penalty? Right. Well, there were people that raised that concern on the amicus brief, um, but they ultimately signed because there was a footnote put in hmm. sort of disclaiming that folks that are signing this brief are not seeding the question on you know, whether the death penalty is, um, you know, is, is, is constitutional or is, you know, right. et cetera, et cetera. I, that what they're saying is, look, if, we're, if you're in a no-win position, we want yeah. these defendants to have as much agency as they possibly can. If Michael Nance is going to be executed. Yes, he should have the right to right. present the state of Georgia with an alternative um, mm. uh, sort of thing. But I'm, I'm sorry, what was your question My there? My question is just yeah. it's still hard to try to find more just ways to die if you're not in support of the death penalty yes. as it is. absolutely. But you're forced to try to find mm -hmm. these alternative ways of dying. Yep. And it seems to be that there is no great way of dying. <laughs> we've, kind of, we've kind of seen that with all of these mm -hmm. botched executions yep. with lethal injection. Yeah, it's true. And it's... it's um, you know, my uh, uh, I, I agree with you that it is it seems odd for someone to fight for the right to choose a different way to die. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you know, I think I don't know Mr. Nance's interior motivations. I know mm -hmm. the legal arguments mm -hmm. that he's making. 
But for me, I, you know, whatever his internal motivation is, whether it's I want people to see how bloody an execution is, mm-hmm. you know, and to stop making it cosmetically pretty. I want people yeah. to be forced and confronted with the violence that they are inflicting on anyone they put to death, yeah. including me. Or whether it's I really don't want to be, to, to be, you know, um, gasping for air and and having and being unable to communicate because I've been right. paralyzed or what you know or yeah. ling- having this lingering death and not being able to yeah. you know I don't want that torturous execution that I've been told can sometimes happen with lethal injections mm-hmm. and I want a death that's going to be really quick and painless and, and you know maybe not painless but like over with right. I don't want I don't right. want all of these unpredictable things you know, I don't want someone, I don't want to have to sit there tied down while they try to establish yeah. IV lines, right? I just want someone to shoot me and get it over with, mm. right? Whatever it is for him, right? Uh, you know, these are bad, this is a, a choice amongst all bad options for someone mm-hmm. who does not want to be put to death. Mm-hmm. But whatever his motivations may be, right? I, you know, I think those of us who signed on to this brief strongly believe that he should be able to die um, with, you know, as little pain and as much dignity um, as, as possible. That's part one of our two-part series, The Right to Death with Daniel Chance. Thank you for listening. Canopy Forum and the Interactions podcast are distributed by the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University and produced by Anna Knudsen and Ethan Anthony. You can follow Canopy Forum on Twitter or Facebook. Follow Interactions on Instagram and subscribe to Interactions on your favorite podcast platform.